Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. This is Jan Bartlett with Tuesday Home Time and I'll be here until 6 this evening. On the program today, arrests of seven activists at the nuclear missile base in Georgia, US. They've been in jail for two months now and facing trial in a couple of months' time. I'll be speaking with one of those seven, Martha Hennessy from the Catholic Worker Movement. A report back from VCAT to do with the site in Faulkner in McBride Street. You'll be hearing that over this program and others on 3CR about the fight for a clean-up, a proper clean-up of the site after New Farm Chemicals had the place for many, many years and developed many noxious chemicals, including dioxin. And um, I'll be here from Sue Bolton, who attended the VCAT meetings over a couple of days. In Guatemala, the death of a tyrant, Rios Mont, which happened in April, and in Brazil, staying in that area of the world, the jailing of former president of Brazil, Lula da Silva. So the two entirely different men. So Professor Emeritus James Petrus will be talking about their lives and the likelihood for Lula da Silva facing 12 years in jail. Venezuela, the Middle East, fake news in Russia, why protests in Nicaragua? I'll be speaking with Dr. Tim Anderson, activist and academic. But first, let's hear it for Mr. Kevin Healy. A weak Jane Lister when, remember after the media clamoured lasciviously as former Minister for Caring Business Class Relations, Michaelia Koshta the Workers, Organisational Love Child, the Deregister Evil Unions Commission, in its first ever case, raided a union office over a matter years and years and years ago when Socialist Party Supremo and would-be Big Supremo, Little Billy Short and Ambition, worked there. And the media just happened to be there to record just how evil the unions and Little Billy were and Macadia said it was not a political stunt and the deregister evil unions commission was not itself a political stunt because it was a recommendation of the Her Most Gracious Majesty's Smash Evil Unions Trillion Dollar Commission which was also not a political stunt. And what could be more independent than the Smash the Evil Unions con mission? Michaelia said she had no idea how the media could have possibly known about the raid. Five times she denied her office or she knew anything, did anything. Outdoing Peter, whom the dear baby Jesus said would deny him three times, and Caesar. And thrice did he refuse. Did this in Caesar seem ambition? Then it turned out the media had been alerted by Michaelia's office, but not as a political stunt. And Michaelia said she knew nothing about her staff spending the day making sure the media were there, and she didn't even know there was going to be a raid, and her staff must have been too busy organising the not-a-political-stunt to tell her. After all, she'd only asked her absolutely, totally independent love child to investigate the years-ago political donations 
as the most urgent crime in the whole country before she disappeared behind a whiteboard like a magic act. And now the union, and we can never call the AWU an evil union, now the union has subpoenaed poor Macalia to turn up and explain what she did though. Macalia, who has denied knowing anything, and on, on one level we can believe that, but surely they don't think she might not be telling the truth, the whole truth and nothing but. And she says she'll tear up the subpoena. She's so annoyed because the union move is nothing more than a political stunt. And how that must upset Macalia and the government. They know a political stunt is, hypothetically say, by elections on the very day, weeks and weeks and weeks away, when your opposition is holding its national conference or... Oh, of course, I just remembered that that did happen, didn't it? But, but if the Socialist Party had done it, it would have been a political stunt. But we know the government of Big Supremo Malcolm Tunner Bull and Macalia did it. So obviously it was not a political stunt. Just a happy little coincidence. Macalia, of course, is now titled Minister for Jobs, and perhaps there's one in particular she should be worried about. Speaking of little Billy and the Socialist Conference, the very name Socialist guarantees it will make the destruction of capitalism its major objective, the Socialist Objective. Okay, it got rid of the Socialist Objective years ago at the famous Terrigal Conference, left of left treasurer Jim Cairns lighting the bonfire, but that doesn't make it any less dangerous, any less a clever ruse. Perhaps we could call it a political stunt to put the great exponents of the greatest little economic order of them all off their guard by thinking the Socialist Party hasn't got a Socialist Objective. And how Machiavellian of the Socialist Party to keep giving it that impression. And this week, after the State Socialist Party here gagged debate on treating asylum seekers with just a little humanity, gagged in part by a so-called left union, little Billy said he was not afraid to debate bringing a little humanity into refugee policy because he knew he had the numbers to prevent these goody-goody black armband lots succeeding in bringing a little humanity into refugee policy and thereby costing him trillions of votes, little Billy knowing that humanity is a no-no if you want to win. And it's important to win so you can bring a little humanity into the lives of no proper papers, queue-jumping, illegal boat people. Except if you do bring a little humanity, you will break an election promise not to bring a little humanity and the electorate will turn against you and you won't get re-elected, so you can do something about asylum seekers, except if you do, oh look, politics is so complicated, isn't it? But then little Billy does have a streak of humanity in his policy, as he says he would work harder than the government to find a country somewhere, anywhere, other than true blue Aussie, to accept our responsibilities. See, that's the difference between the socialists and the cold-hearted, caring business class lot. Just to complete that item, our earlier quote, did this in Caesar seem ambition? The next line is, ambition should be made of sterner stuff. So can't imagine why I raised that thinking of little Billy. 
speaking of Caesar, the gentle art of stabbing in the back maintains its proud history, with that dynamic leader of one-notion democracy, that appalling Hoonsun, announcing she had been stabbed in the back by one of her own just because she changed her mind, uh, her don't-tax-the-filthy-rich policy 103 times, and more to come, without consulting him, but then revealing a commendable burst of self-awareness, telling us, People are sick of politicians because they do nothing. <laughs> Didn't think you had that much self-awareness in you, that appalling congratulations. And Caesar also reminds us that Socialist Party long, long, long-term backbencher Michael Dunby Facts compared China to the Kaiser circa World War I as he extended his global concerns beyond his beloved Zion to tell us we must hate the Chinese Communist Party. That must be because he's distressed capitalist China is not really communist. And we must oppose any attempt by China to block access for our commercial shipping in the South China Sea, he warned us. And how dare those sceptics point out to Dunbar facts that the only true Blue Aussie ships using the South China Sea are heading to China and back. Michael was last seen dancing painfully on one foot, having shot himself in the other. Not sure if that's better than being stabbed in the back or not. Exciting news with the Quarterly Bureau of Statistics report released yesterday showing company profits rose twice as much as economists forecast, meaning we'll all be better off. Isn't it wonderful? And the only slight cloud over this wonderful news is last Friday's lowest of low pay decision, which awarded them about half what they selfishly claimed. But that half was still a major threat because the double profits obviously weren't enough to offset a disaster for lowest of low-paid workers as the sundry chambers of profits predicted the end of the world as we know it. And they're not known for hyperbole when it comes to workers and evil unions. The time is not right for such crippling impediments on caring employers just trying to create employment when the decision will cost jobs. They sounded shattered. The evil unions had failed the lowest of low-paid and it's, and it's heartwarming that their every thought is with the lowest of low paid who will be hurt by getting more money. One thought of our own though, which of the caring employers would tell us just when the time is right for lazy avaricious workers to get a pay rise? Because evil unions never pick the right time. Speaking of great corporates doing their best for all of us, faced with calculating the GST on purchases sent to True Blue Aussie, Amazon strike went on strike and declared True Blue Aussie out of bounds as a US op court case threatens to hit his, hit it, as the True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review described it, with a new tax. And I'm not sure that's the correct description. Given as far as Amazon strike is concerned, there's no old tax. On the other hand, Amazon strike paying any tax would be new, so maybe that's what the Capitalist Review meant. Now, as we admitted last week, our 3CR budget couldn't afford an interview with former Hayseed and Sheepshit Party Supremo, now far, far, far back and rapidly disappearing backbencher Barnacle and his new partner, but after a promotion on the Kerry Stacks of Wealth channel, the interview all Trouble Aussie is talking about. Being the dedicated, assiduous journalists we are here at 3CR, we conducted a Vox Pop to test the marketing claim. 
And in fairness, Channel Stacks of Wealth was spot on. Everybody was talking about it. You've got to be joking. And no way, mate. What spoil my night? You'd have to be brain dead. Not on your life, were just a few of the enthusiastic responses. And of the 150 interviews we conducted, we decided to do one to celebrate every $1,000. They all insisted they had no intention of watching it. And the ratings confirmed our in-depth journalism. Gee, it's hard to believe, isn't it? Finally, Malcolm is touring drought-stricken rural areas with Barnacle's dynamic successor as Hayseed and Sheepshit Party Supremo, the absolute scum of the earth people, according to Barnacle, and we'll be nice and not comment on that. But Malcolm advised these farmers they must adapt to climate change. Given that the lot behind me in my no-such-thing-as-climate-change party guarantees we'll do nothing about it, let me, as the strong leader of this country, advise you to adapt to climate change uh, if there is uh, such a... And what do you advise, one farmer asked. Well, with heavy marketing, surely you could create a market in sand flies, for instance. Appropriate, because they've had their heads buried in it for years. Good afternoon. And good afternoon to Mr Kevin Healy. And hopefully, hopefully, if I ask him nicely, there'll be a week that was next week for Radio Some Week, because that's the week when we all look to save money. Save money and give it to 3CR because we need it to keep going for yet another year. So no proper or regular programming next week, but hopefully Mr Kevin Healy will be here to jog you along to encourage you to donate to 3CR. That's next Tuesday between 2 and 4, 4 and 6, I mean. It's going to be a long 4 to 6 on next Tuesday, asking and asking and hopefully telling the whole world that we're getting all these pledges to keep this wonderful radio station on air for another year. That's it, next week between 4 and 6. On the night of the 4th of April this year, seven Catholic plowshare activists entered the Kings Bay Naval Base, St Mary's, Georgia, and by early morning on the 5th of April, they were detained in a Georgia jail. One of those activists was Marsha Hennessy, the granddaughter of one of the founders of the Catholic workers' movement, Dorothy Day. And as Martha and her friends are awaiting trial, there are limitations on what she is able to say in this interview. But to introduce Martha. A retired occupational therapist, Hennessy divides her time between family in Vermont and work in the Mary House Catholic Worker in New York City, New York. An outspoken activist, she has been imprisoned for protesting war, nuclear power and weapons, the use of drones and the torture of prisoners in Guantanamo Bay. She has travelled to Afghanistan, Egypt, Iraq, Iran, Palestine and Russia to understand the effects of war on people. Additionally, Hennessy participated in a nine-day fast for peace, taught conversational English to Kurdish children in Iraq and met with Palestinians on the border of Rafah on the Gaza Strip. But to return to Georgia and the Kings Bay Naval Base. When I spoke with Martha yesterday, I asked her first about the role that base plays in the US war machine. The base was opened 
in uh, May of 1979, I believe. Um, President Carter at the time dedicated the property to be used that way. It is a U.S. naval submarine base for the Trident fleet, nuclear sub fleet. And I believe that six um, submarines are based out of there and are serviced and maintained out of Kings Bay uh, Naval Base. They have bunkers that have nuclear bombs and weapons, warheads in them that are stored for readiness to put on missiles. And um, Kings Bay is the East Coast equivalent of Kitsap Ouch in uh, Washington State. And it is the largest nuclear submarine base on Earth. And what would a base like that cost the U.S. taxpayers? Boy, that's a fact that I do not have about what the price tag is of that place over the years. I just have $70 million is the cost of each D-5 missile that is maintained in this um, Trident system and fleet. But uh, billions, just billions upon billions. And they are talking about spending even more billions to so-called upgrade and modernize the U.S. nuclear arsenal. How big are they, these subs? It's 130,000 pounds. It can go for, uh, well, it carries the ballistic missiles that that have a range of 4,000 nautical miles. The missiles themselves are 44 feet long, and I believe that the Trident carries up to 20 of them. So they're pretty huge, 560 feet in length, or nearly two football fields. Can you talk about the, the night of the 4th and the 5th of April this year? What were the preparations? Um, I think, again, that those are details that are too um, close to what will be asked of us in trial. All I can simply say is that we spent many months in preparation, in spiritual preparation, and we prayed very hard. All I can say is I was extremely nervous, and I just did my best to uh, keep up my courage and to remind myself that um, the firepower in this kind of base is enough to exterminate the world many times over. And I just simply prayed to God. I mean, we're, we're practicing Catholics, that, and Phil Berrigan, of course, is our inspiration. And he spoke of uh, preparation for self-disarmament. And so our preparations were very much on a spiritual level. And we always seem to rely on the Holy Spirit opening doors for us and helping us along the way. You chose a particular day? Yes, the 50th anniversary of the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., April 4th, 2018. And... King, of course, spoke about the triple evils of uh, racism, militarism, and materialism, and he very clearly spelled out the direction that our nation was traveling in, in terms of moral and spiritual depredation, and so we felt the need to honor 
and bring bring forth his name. We also are very cognizant of this appropriation of King's name. We are not black, we are white. And we just try to tread very carefully and very uh, meaningfully to choose that date. Who was in your group and how far had they travelled for that time? There are seven of us in the group. We have Father Stephen Kelly, who resides in Oakland, California. We have Elizabeth McAllister, widow of Phil Berrigan, who um, resided in Baltimore, New York area. Patrick O'Neill, who runs a Catholic worker in Garner, North Carolina. Myself, in Vermont and in New York City at Mary House. Mark Koval from the New Haven Amistad Catholic Worker House. And uh, Carmen Trotta with the New York Catholic Worker House. I think that's all seven of them. You were all detained on the site? We were, we were detained um, at the base, and then we were turned over to the local county jail. We spent one month in the county jail. Uh, state charges were leveled against us, and we were not given bail for the misdemeanor of trespass, and we were given no bail. We, we were denied bail for the other two charges of destruction of government property and depredation, I think, of, of property. I, I can't even remember the charges. And then um, the federal charges came down, I believe, on May 3rd. We were moved May 9th to the Glynn County Detention Center and spent another uh, nearly a month there. And right now, uh, three of us are out on house arrest with leg monitors and uh, the four Mark, Claire, Steve, and Liz still remain in the Glynn County Jail. Were you all kept separate? Um, the first month, the three of us women were together in the same room, the same cell. It was a two-bed cell, but one of us stayed on the floor. It's a very overcrowded county jail, um, so we were put in the same room together, which was... a very good of the jail, and then when we were sent to Glynn County, I was with Liz for one week, and then all three of us were separated, and all of the men were separated immediately at Glynn County. I think two of them got to be together with the first month at Camden County, but they pretty much make it a practice of, of separating out co-defendants. What were the conditions? The conditions were very, very difficult. There is an opioid epidemic going on in the country right now, and the jails are simply filled with people with horrible addictions. Many of them, their addiction started with uh, medical care, being placed on uh, painkillers. Many of them are in for minor infractions, what we would consider desk appearances, like uh, expired car insurance on being detained for weeks at a time for that because of bail being set very high. Southeast Georgia is uh, known to be backward and corrupt. The denial of bail, bail set too high, uh, repeated charges, entrapment with probation. And so the physical aspect of it was difficult. I mean, the, the Southern hospitality is something lovely. It's too bad that, you know, we had to experience it with the, the military prison 
complex and, and culture. And it was very crowded, very noisy. Um, the food was fairly edible in Camden County and then very much worse in Glynn County. And our mail was, you know, altered and sometimes not given to us, sent back. Uh, we had very little access. One phone for 30 women, one shower for 30 women in Camden County, and very difficult time meeting with either priests or lawyers. You say the opiate epidemic. Does that mean that many of the people in the prison with you were suffering withdrawal? Yes, people die in those prisons suffering from withdrawal because of inappropriate treatment. And I think once they're off the street drugs, it's very common that they get placed on uh, pharmaceuticals. I mean, that's how this epidemic has been started. And a lot of the women in the jails were receiving medications on a daily basis, one to three times a day. And a lot, I believe, are psychotropics, you know, dealing with depression, anxiety, and it's just a very, very sad picture, and many of the women are young mothers. Did you have any idea when you might be getting out, or did you just, just it was just a day-to-day happening? It was rather a day-to-day, week-to-week experience. Um, the big question was whether we would be able to get out on bail. And again, the second judge who saw us due to the federal charges he um, set a bond of $50,000 and a bail of $5,000 cash. So, again, this is a very, very high set and very um, rigid precondition agreement with house arrest. So it was just rather miraculous that three of us did get out. We chose to get out because of family needs. But, no, most people sit in those jails waiting and waiting and not hearing and not knowing what's ahead of them, not knowing when they would be called out for hearings, expecting that a hearing was scheduled and then having it canceled, having um, public defenders not even showing up to hearings, all very unpredictable and purposefully so. And that could be the case for your male friends? Yes. I mean, we were treated much better than most people, of course. Uh, We are people of privilege and background. But once you're you're in that system, it's very difficult to get out of it. I mean, it's not a situation of innocent until proven guilty, very clearly. Tell me what it's like to have, um, is it a leg leg bracelet? Hurt. (laughs) It does it. Yes, I was able to go to Mass today, six miles away. Um, It's ugly, it's uncomfortable, it hurts me, it's unnecessarily big and cumbersome. I'm sure we have the technology to make them more discreet and more comfortable. I'm told I cannot go swimming. I'm a a swimmer. I'm really very sad about that. But I cannot be outside of my house from... 8 p.m. until 7 a.m. I can only walk to my mailbox at 3 o'clock each day. My responsibilities here are gardening and uh, child care. I have three grandchildren who live right um, on the premises with my husband and I. And it's degrading. It's humiliating. It's uncomfortable. I'm an occupational therapist, so I rigged up a way 
to not get pressure sores from it. But uh, I do not know what the um, GPS, the implications are with, you know, how it sends out the cellular signal. I mean, I know that cell phones, it's questionable how safe they truly are for our health. But this is all minor personal sacrifice in the face of what the globe is facing. Do you have a date for a trial? Not yet. We have an August 3rd pre-trial motions hearing, and I believe the function of this next hearing, I'm, I've, I'm stuck with the leg monitor until August 3rd for sure, and it's at that point where the prosecution and the government do their best to essentially strip us of a legitimate defense. And it's at that hearing, too, that we hope to hear of a trial date sometime in the fall, I would assume. How serious are the charges you're facing? I think we're facing a minimum of five years. There are four charges. The first one of trespass, which is, you know, a misdemeanor. It's not like a felony. But also conspiracy, and that certainly is a felony. Destruction of governmental property and depredation depredation of property are the other charges, the four charges, and they're pretty serious, and the government has been known to play dirty tricks at the last minute, you know, adding on other charges that we don't have the time or the defendants don't have the time to prepare for or to consider. So we have to expect anything. But you do have lawyers. Yes, we have a legal team. And um, William Quigley from Loyola University in New Orleans, Louisiana, he is working with us as he has worked with the last few plowshares trials. And, you know, we, we hope to get in this defense that includes the reasons why we do what we do and the motivations of who we are and why we've done what we've done but very much the U.S. federal courts since the 1980s has been successful in blocking and obliterating having nuclear weapons put on trial to examine their legality. I mean, we have laws about landmines, cluster bombs, biological and chemical weapons, and, of course, nuclear weapons are worse than all of those weapons combined, and yet we have not been able to have a trial where an expert witness speaks to the legality and the reality of the U.S. nuclear arsenal. Particularly at the time when the international organization ICANN has won the Nobel Peace Prize to get rid of these weapons. Yes, and we do have that new treaty that came out of the U.N. July 7th of last year, 2017, And that treaty certainly is the latest installment in decades-long efforts um, with these treaties that have been consistently violated by the nuclear weapons states. And there are several things coming into play right now that are of grave concern of the Trump administration's nuclear posture review, where they are looking at trying to make these weapons more usable. And we have the... um, threat against both Korea and Iran. The United States has been on a killing spree since 2001 9-11 incident, and we have destroyed 
several countries, Iraq, Afghanistan, Yemen, Somalia. We play a hand in the destruction of Yemen, Libya. So, yes, these are very critical times, and we are hoping that we can just add a voice to the demands. There's also the book, The Doomsday Machine, The Confessions of a Nuclear Planner by Daniel Ellsberg of the Pentagon Papers. And, you know, he is painting quite a picture of, you know, the security of this arsenal in the, in the world today. And so the time is now to really address what ICANN has tried to address, what the UN has tried to address, and the Nuremberg principles in the past, and uh, the, the Russia, the Russian um, government does have an interest in having some kind of sane discussions and talks about this situation. You know, the great scandal is that these nuclear weapons are in the hands of the white Christians, as Dorothy would say, Dorothy Day. Can you explain who Dorothy Day was? The co-founder of the Catholic Worker Movement, she and Peter Marn started the Catholic Worker in 1933. And Dorothy is my grandmother, and she often talked about the scandal of who holds these nuclear weapons. And she also wrote a stunning piece in September of 1945 about Hiroshima and Nagasaki, about standing in the fog of New York on the hills of eastern Pennsylvania and breathing in the dust of our destroyed brothers and sisters of Japan. That's all I have, Martha. Is there anything you'd like to say to conclude? No, thank you ever so much, and, and I want to thank Kathy Kelly for connecting you and I. And Kathy is now in Kabul, Afghanistan, where there's a terrible drought going on, and the war just has been, you know, present for so many decades there that the, the destruction to everyone there is absolutely heartbreaking. And so I would just say that we all do our little part to try and bring peace to the planet and I appreciate your willingness to listen to my little story thank you Martha and good luck with it all thank you ever so much bye bye and that was Martha Hennessy who's one of seven anti-nuclear activists peace activists from the Catholic worker movement who um, entered the base at um, Georgia US where the Trident missiles are, and for their whatever, they all got arrested, and now, as Martha said, they could be facing a minimum of five years jail. You won't hear many stories like that on mainstream media, and that's why we have community radio, and that's why you need to support to support community radio. Next week is the chance to do that. 3CR needs you. Fight for your mic and donate to 3CR's annual Radiothon. 3CR Radiothon 2018. Fight for your mic. Call 9419 8377 or go to 3cr.org.au. An issue we've been following for quite some time. And today it's a report back from the VCAT meeting last month, 
pertaining to an application to construct two warehouses on what residents believe is a site which remains contaminated after years of the operation of the new farm chemical company and that the clean-up between 1994 and 95 was inadequate and that risks are there for human health and environmental health should the site be developed. Sue Bolton, a councillor with Moreland City Council and a member of Toxic Free Faulkner, attended the VCAT hearings. Sue, perhaps I could ask you first if you could summarise the three parties' submissions to the VCAT meeting. Well, the key points of the council's submission to VCAT were made by an environmental auditor uh, who was the council's expert called Peter Ramsey. He basically advocated that a new environmental audit with new testing needs to be done on the site because the original environmental audit, which was done in 1995, had two fundamental flaws. One of the flaws was that the original auditor mixed the samples. So he mixed together samples of high toxicity, low toxicity from different parts of the site. So there's no way you could really work out exactly how toxic the site is because of that mixing of samples. And secondly, the original auditor never tested the groundwater. So that was the central, uh, th- those were the central points put forward by the council that you really couldn't work out what the best way was of remediating the site until you re-audited or retested the site. And, and sort of basically that was um, a sort of, you know, the key, some of the key points of Toxic Free Faulkner's um, submission as well. Then you basically had the Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA, basically arguing a sort of pretty much identical argument with the developer. And in fact, the, develop, the developer's uh, lawyer, basically, um, when they put in their submission, they had the EPA submission on the, on the back of it. So the EPA's argument and their experts that they uh, produced was that the site would be safer if it was developed rather than left underdeveloped, if there was a requirement for more testing, etc., then an owner wouldn't be able to afford that, so they'd just leave the site undeveloped as is, and therefore it would be much safer if they had a lovely uh, concrete slab across the site as a, as a uh, extra barrier to contamination, as a, um, as a lovely concrete cap on the site. And they were really questioned about that um, by the council's legal opinion um, and also um, they put that case to the council's expert. Now the council replied that while it might be a barrier for certain chemicals, unless you've actually re-audited, retested the site, you can't know what you need to remediate against or what sort of barrier you need to create that would be impervious for the chemicals, the toxic chemicals underneath the clay cap. He also said that volatile gases 
accumulate underneath con concrete and that concrete is not impervious. Also, the Western Region Environment Centre advocate, uh, Harry Van Morse, also pointed out that putting a concrete cap over the top of a contaminated site can have the effect of pushing contamination out uh, to the edges as in like a sponge cake that where you layer, put two layers together with cream in the middle and you push it down and the cream squishes out the sides, that that can be a consequence of putting a heavy clay cap over the top of a um, contaminated site where the contamination is pushed out to the edges. The EPA really argued with FECAT that it didn't have the power to order a new audit they claimed that the council's expert was exaggerating the level of contamination and there's no need for a new audit unless there's some evidence of increased contamination. But the council's expert responded that, well, you really needed um, the original audit uh, and original testing was so poor that you had to really do that so that you knew what you were dealing with. The EPA also put forward an expert to say that there was negligible risk on the basis that uh, the screw piles that they will use to anchor the building onto the site will bring up very little soil, very little contaminated soil, and any dust that does escape will just be um, diluted by the surrounding non-chemical dust on you know that's swirling around in the air and they were sort of saying that um, any vapors or dust that escapes into the warehouse will just be mixing with other air particles etc and therefore will just dissipate its sort of negligible risk one of the scientists advising uh, toxic free Faulkner is that um, there is a fundamental flaw with the with what the EPA is putting forward and that is that there is a certain amount of background dioxin in the environment and dioxin is cumulative so even if you only have a low level of dioxin contaminating a site because dioxin bioaccumulates and because we all have a little tiny bit of dioxin within us that we absorb from our surroundings that therefore a contaminated site, uh, which even has low levels of dioxin contamination, that dioxin uh, bioaccumulates in people and so that low level of dioxin contamination can result in a high, high level or medium level of dioxin contamination in, indivi in certain individuals. So there is a fundamental flaw in the EPA's risk assessment and basically at the end of the hearing there was a fair amount of argument that the EPA, from the EPA that VCAT didn't have the power to order a new audit. So that's where things sat um, at the end of the VCAT hearing and it's really unclear what the outcome is going to be whether they'll lean towards the EPA's argument or the council's argument and toxic free Faulkner's argument that 
the site needs to be retested so that we can work out a plan for what to do with the site. And so we're expecting the decision to be sometime around mid-June. But what we do know is regardless of the outcome of the VCAT hearing, we'll need to keep going as toxic-free Faulkner. You know, the best outcome would obviously be for new and to overturn the old audit and redo the audit with new testing because I believe that would be uh, would have to occur on the full original site, if I'm not mistaken, including the section that is not up for a planning permit. But if approval is granted, even with um, some extra conditions that the EPA has proposed and the developers agreed to, if that option is uh, what the VCAT goes for, then it means a lot of responsibility on the local community to monitor the owner and, and developer of the site to make sure that they're complying with those conditions. And that is a really onerous burden on the community because residents move in and out of the area, you lose historical knowledge about a particular site and then, um, you know, lo and behold, a new, you know, maybe the site might be sold, a new owner comes in, they don't abide by the conditions, they decide to, you know, do illegal drilling below the clay cap and contaminants are released in, into the atmosphere. You know, I mean, what this whole case just reveals is that the uh, safeguards around con legacy contaminated sites like this one are totally inadequate. And this is a precedent, isn't it? I believe it is a precedent. That was my impression from listening to the argument backwards and forth between the parties, that if we can get this site re-audited, that will be a precedent and will really help other communities that have to fight around these legacy toxic sites, contaminated sites, where the contamination was mostly done before we had environmental laws in place. What about the EPA? Just, just say the, the, the full word, Environment Protection Authority. Where does that fit into what you've been listening to over those three or four days? Well, I would say they're the Environment Unprotection Agency. I think the way they operate is very much based on a sort of a, a sort of a risk assessment where they don't want to be seen to be blocking development. They only want to take action when there is an extreme level of evidence of contamination. That's the impression I get from uh, listening to the EPA's evidence. They do not seem to be really in consideration of the impact of these sites on residents and we've had to really fight the EPA all along the line to release information to recognise that there's toxicity on the site which they have recognised now but in their original um, reports to uh, Moreland Council they were basically saying that the site was clean as a whistle that all the contamination had been removed, that it was not contaminated any longer. And, you know, 
they've been forced to admit that the site is contaminated, uh, but that they, you know, their new line is that, um, you know, the concrete cap will, you know, prevent uh, the contamination impacting on the community. But I think their, you know, their whole approach in this VCAT case has been absolutely disgusting and it basically puts all the responsibility on ordinary community members who have all sorts of different issues going on in their lives, who don't necessarily have scientific qualifications, who, you know, including new residents who have no idea what they might be living next to. I noticed there are two properties up for sale opposite the contaminated site on McBride Street. Will the real estate agents tell the buyers of those properties what they're living across the street from? You know, this is really a dangerous approach, in my opinion, of the EPA. And, of course, as you've pointed out, it's not one site, it's two. That's right, and that's the problem with all of these planning laws. You know, how can you deal with a contaminated site that's been subdivided and sold off to two different owners? And the worst contamination is now on a site which doesn't have a development application on it. There was bad contamination across both sides, but the worst contamination was on the site that doesn't have a planning application. So that in and of itself is a massive, massive problem. What's on that second site now? It's sort of like a warehouse for a $2 shop. It's sort of, you know, non-edible products. But over the years, the site, you know, after New Farm originally sold it, was used for wool and all sorts of things. And, you know, people had to keep on, various owners had to keep on selling the site because they found it was totally unsuitable for um, anything. And so at the moment, the current owners, what they have is some sort of tile business where they want to um, build warehouses on the site for storing tiles. But, you know, I think, uh, you know, there's also risk for workers on the site. You know, what if a manager one day comes and asks workers to dig um, a hole below the clay cap? The clay cap only goes down 0.5 of a metre across most of the site, despite early assurances of the EPA to the Moreland Council that there was a solid metre thick of clay cap across the site. It turns out that that is not, not correct. Now, you've said um, VCAT say they haven't got the power to force a, um, the EPA to clean it up. EPA says they, they're not gonna, they haven't got the power to order it. Who's going to order it? Well, the EPA does have the power to order it, but the EPA was arguing that VCAT didn't have the power to order it. The Moreland Council basically argued that, that VCAT does have the power to order it uh, because, and it was quoting various parts of planning uh, and environment legislation, um, the groundwater policy and the land policy. So the Moreland Council believes that VCAT does have the power to order it a new audit and uh, new testing, but the EPA was desperate to argue that the VCAT didn't have that power and only they should have that power, but they did not 
support any kind of re-audit or retesting of the site. And the problem is that all of the environmental reports since 1995 treat the 1995 audit as solid baseline data and so they only look at whether or not there's increased contamination since that original audit was done. So none of these environmental reports question that original audit, whereas this, um, you know, respected auditor, P Peter Ramsey, the council's expert, says that there have been some re-audits, which have been done, not many, but there have been some. Uh, so there is a precedent for a re-audit to be done, and he believes that original audit has to, is in question. Just wondering what the interaction between the members of the VCAT panel were with the lawyers or the um, representatives of the, of the submission holders. Well, there were two VCAT members. Apparently there's usually only one VCAT member hearing a case. Uh, and in this case, they had a lawyer and an environmental scientist as the members hearing the case. Certainly the lawyer for the EPA was very combative um, and, you know, the EPA was out to basically try to prove and argue that, you know, fear of contamination on the site was groundless, that there was negligible risk, etc., etc. So that was their argument and they put that extremely forcefully but there were also some really strong points put forward by the council's advocate, the Toxic Free Faulkner advocate and Western Region Environment Centre. And the VCAT member, what, what was their interaction? Well, they just sort of really asked questions at different points during the hearing. And, you know, but, you know, it's like a judge in a court. You really just have no idea what they're thinking, which way they're leaning until they actually make their judgment. You know, I don't know, are they prepared to go against the EPA? I don't know. I mean, I, I felt that the EPA argument was, um, you know, a really dangerous argument for the community, but, you know, who knows what VCAT will decide to do. But I think it is going to be important for the campaign to keep on going, sort of, Regard, well, especially if the VCAT case goes against them in, in terms of, you know, if VCAT decides to let the development go ahead, um, I think we've got to keep the campaign going because we need better protection for communities against the risk from contaminated sites. Just to be a bit facetious, you could, someone should have um, asked the, the lawyer for the EPA if he'd like to buy one of the houses that are up for sale. Yes, exactly. yes, exactly, exactly. All right, Sue, so you're keeping on and keeping on. Yeah, absolutely, because I think, um, you know, this is really important and we, yeah, we, we have to do this for the protection of future generations. Okay, thanks, Sue. Thanks. And it looks like I'll be speaking with Sue Bolton from Toxic Free Faulkner and a council with the Moreland City Council um, after the Radio Song program to if they've got a decision by VCAT at that time, it looks like they will. It's 4.55.
What follows is an interview I recorded several weeks ago with Professor Emeritus James Petrus from New York about two very different men. The first, a man never brought to account for his crimes against his people, former Guatemalan dictator Ephraim Rios Montt. I asked James if he believed that Mont's training at the infamous School of the Americas in the early 1950s led to his later genocidal actions. Uh, it's very clear that the, the uh, graduates of the uh, U.S. military training bases has had a major effect in several senses. One, it has uh, made them uh, really satraps of the U.S. government and uh, very obedient to uh, commands of Washington in terms of uh, exterminate political and uh, uh, insurgent opposition. Secondly, I think it uh, serves to uh, provide the uh, Rios Mont regime with the training and uh, the organization and the armaments that would uh, allow him to carry out the genocidal policies that he exercised during his uh, so-called presidency or rulership or dictatorship. Thirdly, it, especially during the uh, Reagan period, uh, it gave him a certain uh, protection from human rights international denunciations and uh, uh, criminal investigations. Fourthly, I think Rios Montt uh, got a kind of uh, accessibility to uh, U.S. intelligence. When that was uh, blocked by the U.S. Congress, he secured a a strong support from Israel and uh, the uh, support of their intelligence operations that helped Rios Mont locate insurgents and murder them. Uh, The uh, School of the Americas was itself a training base for uh, genocidal politics but it also gave him access to an, uh, a certain degree of uh, collaboration from the U.S. in carrying on his uh, dictatorial and genocidal politics. Did he play a part in the 1954 coup? Uh, Rios Montt, I'm not sure. Uh, I don't have the uh, information on that coup at that time, but uh, if he was in the military... I, I, he certainly would have been a uh, supporter of the coup and his uh, policies when he came into the government were compatible with uh, making a coup to overthrow a democratically elected government. Do you know anything about his time in Spain, Thunder Franco? Not really, but uh, his policies are compatible with the fascist regime in uh, Spain and he probably exceeded... Uh, the Franco regime in terms of war crimes against uh, humanity. When was it that he actually came to the top to bring forward his genocidal policy against the the local people? Well, I I think the uh, Reagan administration, which was uh, very supportive of Rios Montt, in fact, uh, Reagan, who was president at the time, was... uh, vehemently opposed uh, uh, the condemnations, especially among human rights advocates and and congressional critics in Washington. He spoke of it being a raw deal when he was accused of genocide in the murder of uh, 
at least 200,000 uh, Mayan Indians and others uh, rural uh, population in Guatemala. What was the, the genesis of that? What happened in 1982 that started the genocidal policies? Well, let's put it this way. The, the genocidal policies were uh, in some degree part of the uh, military rulership after the coup. Uh, while the, the scope and depth of the assassinations and murder of uh, the electorate and the general population increased quantitatively and qualitatively with Rios Montt. There was a prolonged period of uh, severe repression leading up to the genocidal policies. So uh, Rios Montt was, uh, broke new ground in terms of uh, the tens of thousands of people that were murdered. But uh, it has its roots in the uh, 30 years prior to the uh, the coup and Rio Mont's uh, rule. And uh, it was allowed, tolerated by various U.S. governments at the time, though they, they may have criticized the methods. They certainly didn't object to uh, in- instituting a anti-socialist, anti-democratic opposition. So Rio's Mont simply... Uh, and uh, disastrously for the population went on a rampage comparable to Nazi Germany with Israeli collaborators very active once the U.S. cut off military aid and ties to the Rios Mont government, uh, especially during the uh, Carter presidency. And then uh, in that period of time, uh, as I said, the estimates run over 200,000 people that were killed. And that was part of a general regional process. Similar processes took place in uh, El Salvador at the same time. Over 90,000 Salvadorians were killed. Thousands of Hondurans were killed. Over 50,000 Nicaraguans were killed under Somoza and up to 19, uh, 1979 until it was overthrown by the uh, Sandinista government. And I think the uh, factor of uh, insurgency in Central America, in Nicaragua, Salvador, and Guatemala, was instrumental in uh, the policy of extermination of uh, any kind of uh, community that exercised uh, or demanded autonomy. A great number of people fled across the border into Mexico? Yes, there were several tens of thousands of Guatemalans that fled across the border to Mexico and and eventually got into the United States. And ironically, the uh, same U.S. that was sponsoring the death squads was also the uh, site where many people fled in order to try to survive the death squads, and uh, later they, there was a major campaign to expel them, even though they faced certain death in sending them back to Central America. How did the killings stop? Well, they really never totally stopped. The uh, period after uh, the uh, worst part of the slaughter, first of all, they eliminated anyone that could possibly... They, they ran out of people to kill in one sense, 
after you've killed two or three hundred thousand people, there's virtually no one else to to kill, and and many of these uh, possible victims, future victims, fled the country. So you had probably over a million people that were dead uh, in exile or. Uh, uh, fled to uh, some place of safety, not only the United States, Mexico, but across the borders. So uh, that plus the fact that uh, human rights groups began to exercise influence in the Congress, which thought that uh, the, the excesses uh, were no longer necessary and that they tried to harness the government in order to uh, have uh, less criticism from world public opinion. Did Rios not stay in power? No, eventually they allowed for a shift in uh, military rule. Another military, uh, a quasi-military candidate was allowed to uh, take office, but they all came from a general political orientation, which was to submit to Washington uh, and open the country to uh, pillage by multinationals and local oligarchs and, and any attempt by peasants to recover land from which they had been evicted. 2013, he finally went to trial. What was that period leading up to that, to getting him to trial? Well, then the, he lost influence among certain sectors of the oligarchy who thought it would be a, a good uh, public relations stunt to put him, allow him to go on trial without making any fundamental changes in the military structure or their ties to the United States. So uh, eventually, I, I think uh, he, he never went to jail. He never uh, uh, was... Uh, duly punished and certainly not uh, uh, with any active intervention by the U.S. What was he charged with? Genocide. Mass murder of the population as far as the uh, independent human rights people, but I think the uh, lesser charges of uh, using the uh, government as a uh, repressive tool against the uh, communities so they they moderated the charges in, in the formal judicial system, though the great majority of uh, public opinion thought he should have been sentenced, uh, tried and sentenced for genocide. But he was convicted, wasn't he? Eventually, but I, I, I don't think that he served any serious uh, time in jail. How will he be remembered particularly by the people of Guatemala. Well, by the oligarchy, he would, he would be uh, considered a, uh, an unsavory but necessary tool uh, that served to uh, protect the uh, interests of the multinational and the ruling class among the Indian population. He's heartily disliked and hated by the vast majority of the Indian communities in Central America. And how has the people got on since that time? There was a peace plan? The peace plan never worked. The oligarchy retained political control. Uh, the uh, leftist forces were completely isolated by the media and by death squads and gangs that were unleashed. And uh, 
So I, I think the uh, what turned out was a electoral competition between the right and the moderate right and the uh, some center left uh, politicals who never gained any influence and, and suffered repression and isolation from the political process. I've been speaking with Professor Emeritus Jones Petrus about the Guatemalan dictator Efron Rios Montt, who died in early April. In the same area of the world, but an entirely different man, Luis Inácio Lula da Silva, former Brazilian president, who after spending three days with his supporters at the headquarters of his metal workers' union in São Paulo, handed himself into the federal police to begin a 12-year prison sentence for corruption and money laundering. Lula da Silva was a uh, popular leader, former trade unionist, elected president two terms with the biggest majorities in the history of Brazilian uh, democratic elections. He was brought to trial on the basis of uh, undocumented charges based simply on one uh, former official who had repented or confessed to crimes and and used his... uh, uh, offer of leniency to uh, denounce uh, Lula, but the uh, independent uh, judicial assessment is that no evidence was ever formally uh, justify any kind of arrest of Lula, and it was simply a way of eliminating him from being re-elected. Uh, and all the polls reveal that uh, Lula was at least twice as uh, had twice as much electoral approval than any uh, oppositionist, whether from the right or the center or the extreme right. It's a kind of uh, political exclusion based on political trials run by judges who refuse to look at alternative uh, sources of uh, evidence. And uh, I think the general opinion is that the uh, trial was... uh, was faulty, and the uh, the prosecution used uh, manipulated evidence based on uh, spurious uh, testimony. Can I take you back again? Who was Lula? What were his background? Lula was a poor uh, immigrant from the north of Brazil uh, who came uh, into uh, the booming uh, metallurgical industry especially the uh, car industry, won uh, elections in the shop floor and eventually up on the uh, national leadership, especially important under the military rule to organize uh, a metallurgical uh, union that uh, was the first major opposition in the late 70s to the uh, dictatorship and uh, a successful general strike among the metal workers allowed for their eventually recognition, even under the outlawing of the military. So uh, Lula formed the, uh, the, the National Confederation of Metal Workers, and that became the basis for the National Confederation of Workers, the leading union. And then uh, from that, during the 90s, uh, the uh, union decided to form a political party called the Workers' Party, 
and after uh, several efforts, it uh, eventually won the uh, election in 2002, and uh, Lula became president and uh, opened the door to uh, reducing uh, poverty levels uh, by 30 million uh, people and uh, increased wages, uh, salaries, health, and educational opportunities without challenging the banks or the corporate ownership. So, in a sense, it was a, uh, a reform government, uh, which unfortunately didn't uh, that increased social spending, uh, but did not uh, change the structure of ownership of property and the banks in controlling the uh, financial system. Uh, Lula was helped enormously by the commodity boom uh, during the uh, mid uh, '80s. I'm sorry, between the uh, 2004 and 2011, and I used that uh, additional government funding for social reforms. But uh, unfortunately, sectors of this uh, party began to uh, look to financing electoral campaigns and, and enriching themselves by uh, taking bribes and, and uh, payoffs from the corporations which uh, they dealt with with government contracts. Lula himself and his uh, vice presidential uh, partner, Dilma, was not, was not involved in any of the uh, illegal financial transactions, but they certainly uh, looked the other way when it was going on. And so when the investigations began, to deal with corruption, which was generalized on the, all the political parties, especially the right-wing parties and the, the right-wing congressmen, that served as the uh, pretext to then uh, attack Lula. Nevertheless, it must have been the first time in Latin America that a, a workers' party came to power. Well, I would say that I think we had... Uh, workers' parties that weren't uh, rooted that closely to the trade unions, but certainly in Chile in the 60s and 70s, the socialist and communist parties were uh, largely uh, working class, uh, based on working class support. Uh, and we had other governments that drew heavily on workers' support, not workers' parties per se, but worker populist parties that uh, certainly widened the social net and uh, increased the power of trade unions. I think of Peronism in Argentina, uh, the uh, broad front in uh, Uruguay, uh, certainly uh, the Chavez government in Argentina, the Cuban revolutionary government in beginning in 59. There was a series of uh, working-class-based governments However, they uh, did not have the degree of uh, leadership that came directly from the working class. Since the jailing of Lula, there's been a lot of criticism of the, of the judicial system in Brazil. Can you comment on that? Well, there's two ways to look at it. One is the judicial system was very much skewed in the favor of the rich and uh, virtually no uh, wealthy people were ever arrested and brought to trial and many of the politicians uh, involved in corruption uh, 
flourished and avoided uh, prosecution. And with with the rise in the uh, first, uh, the second decade of uh, the current century, there was an effort uh, at judicial reform, and it began to look at some of the uh, complex schemes that the uh, Congress and uh, the uh, judiciary itself was uh, infested by uh, criminal behavior. However, it uh, took a decidedly political switch by uh, the 2014-2015 that began to attack people like Lula, Dilma, and others who were elected to office on very uh, superficial charges. And uh, began to, this judiciary began to violate its own procedures and norms. So what started off as a legitimate judicial cleaning house became uh, uh, an, an element in uh, sustaining the same kind of uh, elite rulership that have always been present in Brazil, but had uh, at least had to share its wealth under the Lula government. Lula's defense lawyers have involved the United Nations Human Rights Committee. Has that achieved anything? It has uh, certainly given a lot of publicity and uh, has uh, had some effect in influence a minority of judges. But uh, the uh, ruling elite is so embedded in the judicial system that it's very doubtful that the lawyer approach will rectify this uh, injustice. What's at stake is not simply Lula being jailed, but the electorate denied its opportunity to change the uh, radical uh, reactionary measures that are currently being uh, implemented by the government that replaced Lula. Uh, Michelle Temer, the current president who... uh, who seized power through a a legislative coup, has uh, attempted to uh, reverse the social programs that Brazil, through struggle, has achieved over the last 30 years. The the current government is uh, freezing uh, wages for the next decade. It's allowing for the privatization of the entire economy. It is... uh, providing opportunities for multinationals to take over uh, strategic sectors, including the oil sector, electrical sector. So uh, there is a lot that has passed with the uh, new power elite that is running the political system in terms of uh, reversing the entire uh, welfare state and Brazil and turning it into a paradise for big investors. As I said earlier, Lula is now in prison. Is it possible for him to campaign for the elections later this year from jail as an appeal is heard? Well, that's part of the jailing is to force him out of the competition, not to allow him to campaign, not to be inscribed in the electoral list. 
So uh, it's a way of preserving the reversal of the welfare state and to uh, continue to uh, reverse the uh, social agenda that most people support. I think the uh, absence of Lula is the absence of popular representation and of the vast support for the welfare state. So millions of people are being denied by the jailing of Lula and their candidate of choice. Is there someone to take his place? There is, but they don't have the uh, uh, support and the uh, historical relationships. It's very dubious if any leftist candidate can win a presidential election without Lula heading the ticket and all the symbolism he represents and the fact that he actually did things which people can remember and act on. The other candidates are at best Congress people that have local constituencies and some limited popularity, but it's a very dubious if they would uh, represent any uh, serious drawing power that Lula has. Finally, James, where is Dilma Rousseff now? Yes, she is uh, campaigning for the freeing of Lula. She's uh, attempting to uh, bring out popular support. She's campaigning in Europe and other places to get international support and uh, refutation of the charges but I don't think she's getting anywhere. I think the only route is for the trade unions and the movements to organize a general strike and to uh, threaten the regime with a popular uprising, and that's the only thing that the uh, ruling class will understand, the only thing that the uh, biased judges could understand. If anything short of a mass direct action that affects the pocketbook of the ruling class is not likely to be successful. These hardline right-wingers have uh, a great deal at stake in uh, keeping Lula out of the picture and uh, uh, having access to uh, all the uh, low wages and low insurance and unemployment benefits that were currently in place during Lula's rule. So I think it's not a question simply of debating the, the courts. The courts are rigged against Lula. The only place that this will be decided is in the streets, paralyzing the pocketbooks of the wealthy. Thank you once again, James. Thank you, Jan, and keep up your good work. And that's Professor Emeritus James Petrus, and I recorded that interview a couple of weeks ago, more than a couple of weeks ago now, just before I became ill. I planned to play it the next week, but that didn't happen. But there you go. There's Professor James Petrus talking about Rios Mont, no longer here, and Lula in jail for 12 years. Where's the justice? Time at 3CR, all round the eastern coast is 22 minutes past 5 o'clock. You could be listening on your old analogue radio, 8.55am, you could be listening digital, 3CR. You could be tuned into your computer, or not tuned, but you could be listening to your computer. You could be streaming, which means that it's as it broadcasts, you're listening. It can be 
podcast, which means that you can put it through to your computer and listen to it as you wish. Or you can listen to audio on demand, which is the programs I broadcast for a whole week and then they change over for another week. So there are all those five ways that you could be listening to this wonderful radio station where next week you are going to be in and pledge some money for this station. The Green Left Weekly Comedy Debate is back. We live in a time of crisis, of impending doom and the fear of nuclear war. But we still need to laugh. This year, comedians will debate the very real question. Will Trump tweet us into oblivion? Join Master of Ceremonies Rod Quantock for a sparkling night of progressive comedy featuring Sean Bedlam, Pauline Fartson Hellchild, Kirsty Mack, Gabe Hogan, Frank Hagster, Morven Smith and more. Tickets are $50 Solidarity, $30 Regular, $22 Low Waged and $12 Concessions. There'll be a bar and the opportunity to buy a delicious dinner. Saturday, June 16, 6.30pm at the Brunswick Town Hall. Will Trump tweet us into oblivion? A fundraiser for the radical newspaper Green Left Weekly. Bookings are essential. Phone 9639 8622 or go to trybooking.com forward slash Green Left Weekly is a 3CR supporter. Hi, I'm Rod Quantock and you're listening to Fill in the Dots, you know who you're listening to Why do I have to tell you who you're listening to? You know who you're listening to You're listening to, yes, Fill in the Dots 3CR Community Radio, you got it right, you've won a giraffe. Uh, we're at 855am, we're on digital radio and streaming at 3cr.org.au. 3CR has been making trouble since 1976 and occasionally I've been part of the trouble that's been made. It's a vital part of our uh, media landscape and I'd encourage you to get a hacksaw, an oxyacetylene torch and go up to the Dandenongs and, and bring down all those broadcast towers that aren't 3CR's towers and let's make 3CR the only source of information to an information-starved, dumbed-down Australian community. Written, authorised and spoken by Neil Mitchell. Finally, on Tuesday Home Time, I'm speaking with Dr Tim Anderson, activist and academic. Tim, begin with the recent elections in Venezuela. The corporate media worldwide has nailed it as a fraud. The U.S. is issuing veiled threats again of a military solution. Others say Maduro's last chance. What are your comments on Venezuela? Well, I think they wrote that script before, probably years ago, really, let alone the election. The election had not much to do with it. Interesting, the the participation rate was down in terms of real criticisms of the election. The participation rate was down mainly because of a boycott by a large section of the opposition, but not all of the opposition. But even with that, the participation rate was higher than in the US. So some people have compared that the actual the cohort, the people who could vote, that voted for Maduro, was higher than for Trump. It was higher than for Macri. It was higher than for Santos in Colombia, for example. All the same people that criticised Maduro. So there was always going to be some sort of criticism uh, with all sorts of hyperbole on... Um, on the Venezuelan elections. I think the Organization of American States issued a 400-page uh, human rights report which condemned Maduro and Venezuela for crimes against humanity or something, and some person who knew the background of those people 
confronted them with the information that they had been paid by the US to work in this area for many, many years, basically. So it's really become very predictable, these sorts of criticisms. But what to do about the economy? Well, the economy is a real problem. But let's talk about it in two steps, because in a way, stabilising the country politically is one thing, and that's what's happened with this election. Basically, uh, there's some pressure has been relieved. In fact, some of the opposition political parties are now talking to Maduro. I mean, I saw them... They did this again uh, before, sorry, in 2005. All of the opposition then, all of them, abstained from the National Assembly elections. And the result was the Chavistas got all the seats and got through everything they wanted, and they didn't get any coup. The opposition got no coup in place of an election, and so they had to come back to stand for elections. Indeed, they won the election uh, just uh, only two years ago, the National Assembly elections. Now there's going to be new National Assembly elections in Venezuela, and it looks like they're going to lose them because they're divided. So really, the way I see it, the opposition, which is extreme, and uh, they really have a culture of wanting coups rather than elections, but they shoot themselves in the foot every time they abstain from these uh, contests. Economy? So the economy is a separate thing. There are real problems in the economy. The major issue there is really that the government hasn't been able to stabilise the exchange rate and so you've had unpredictable prices and great instability in terms of foreign exchange and on top of that you've got sabotage going on, there is a highly politicised sabotage going on but it's a mixture of things, it's really the government has now is now issuing a new currency, um, it's the second time they've done that in the last decade or so but uh, they haven't been able to get a handle on on the exchange rate and that that's something they've really got to commit themselves to because a lot of the scandals that the US and the, the right-wing opposition have raised about people eating out of garbage bins and so on, it's mostly fabricated and the Food and Agriculture Organization of the UN has exposed that stuff. But on the other hand, they are relying on social programs for people to get uh, a lot of basic food. They're feeding kids in school. They've been doing that for years now. They've got some a lot of basic subsidised food through Mission Mercal and so on. But there are regular shortages of certain things all the time. And it's, it's politicised, but it's also to do with this um, problem of not being able to stabilise the exchange rate. So at least with more political stability, relatively speaking, despite the things that you were saying about people threatening military intervention and so on, and I think the the, organi- the Latin American organisations that Hugo Chavez created have helped that because now a lot of the other uh, South American countries, for example, despite the fact that you've now got some prominent right-wing governments because of the coup in Brazil, for example, the, the, the legal coup in Brazil, you haven't got an elected government in Brazil, but nevertheless, UNASUR and CELAC remain and they have helped stabilise potential coup situations. So anyway, now now that uh, there is relatively more stability, politically speaking, in, in Venezuela, hopefully they can address these economic problems more seriously. And the oil price? Well, the oil price will, hit, will help them to some degree. I mean, it's also a, a rock around their neck, basically, being having been so dependent, even more dependent on oil as a result of the rising prices after 2003. But it will help them in a the short term, basically, to um, recover their situation economically. Do you also see some fabrication with the figures of the numbers of people that are leaving Venezuela? 
No, but there's, uh, you know, that's overstated too. It's, it's happening to a degree, but I, I think these things are always dramatised in the US. You know, you, you find a whole raft of extreme stories in the US from everywhere, from the New York Times across to Breitbart. All of those people are saying people are starving in the streets and so on. And then someone from the UN comes and says, no, there's no humanitarian crisis. And uh, they move on to the next fabrication. It's really... Just like the Middle East, you know, they will create these pretexts for some sort of intervention. Uh, it's it's a, a necessary evil, and people are unfortunately have to learn to read this sort of repeated, constant fabrication about things. But the US is not going to let this one go, Venezuela. Well, yes, but on the other hand, um, you know, they the Chavistas have been in power for 15 years in Venezuela, you know, so they've been hostile from the beginning. They were calling the late Hugo Chavez a drug dealer supporting terrorism, a dictator, all these sorts of things. He was the most popular Venezuelan president in decades, in many, many decades, you know. So they certainly would prefer to have a, a different government there, but they're not, it's not happening at the moment. Can you explain what's happening in Nicaragua with the government? Well, to, some, to some extent, it's a similar sort of thing. There's a destabilisation going on. There was an issue a real issue which has been blown into a destabilisation matter. Um, it was to do with pensions and so on. But then the US has, as they did in Chile, you know, 40, 45 years ago, they will find any pretext to try and create destabilisation. They've done it with some of the right-wing students in, in Nicaragua. There was a very big peace rally. Um, it was on Mother's Day, wasn't it? I think last month on Mother's Day, a huge peace rally and people... Uh, fired on it. They they created violence in that that peace rally that that people that the women uh, and the mothers were were holding. So there's another destabilisation process going in Nicaragua, and you better think about getting your information from some different sources than the usual ones. You know, people keep going back to the standard corporate and state media, and everything that we get in this country, pretty much except for noble community radio exceptions. Uh, you know, directly from the U.S. We're getting that feed from the U.S. And if people want to be well informed about Latin America and the Middle East, they better start looking at some other sources of information because it's so predictable. Why there are, for example, good English language sources on the Middle East and Latin America. Why don't people use more of them? Why do they keep going back to the same old, same old? Tell us a few of those. Well, I mean, Telesur in in Latin America, of course, says Telesur. It's uh, mainly in English, but there's all, uh, sorry, mainly in Spanish, but there's also an English version there. Telesur, Prensa Latina, for example, even anything. You know, look at the Chinese media, which repeats a lot of that. But go to something other than the U.S. media for all your news about Latin America and the Middle East, because there is such a constant skein of wars going on in those regions, and the U.S. Is, has such highly polarized, highly politicized news about. All of the states that they want to invade or overthrow um, in their desperation because, of course, the U.S. now is in a big hole. It must be obvious with the trade wars now that they're attacking, they're attacking their friends as well as their enemies in, in their trade wars at the moment So, because their economy has been in decline for some years. So that seems to have made them more aggressive in the Middle East, for example, to try and hang on to some privileged positions, privileged access to resources, for example. And that whole also refers to what's happening in Syria, as you've said before, when we don't hear much, it usually means that the government of Syria is, um, has got the, the upper hand against the Western powers who are trying to disable and destroy it. Yes, well, 
Well, they, they've had the upper hand for a couple of years now, and it's spun in different sorts of ways. I mean, if you believe the US media now, you'd think that they were the ones that defeated uh, ISIS or Daesh, whereas in fact it was the Syrians and the Russians and the Iranians that defeated Daesh and the, and the Iraqis. And now the Iraqis are allied with the Syrians against Daesh on the border there, where the US is illegally occupying Syria still and rescuing Daesh leaders and so on. Uh, you may not have seen it, but there was a report this morning from Syria that there's now a popular resistance with almost 100 tribal groups in northeast Syria that have begun attacking the US forces. That is to say the US and French are embedded with some of the Kurdish groups and some of the remnants of Daesh in the northeast of Syria. And they're being attacked now. They've been attacked twice at least in the last couple of months by these popular forces which are aligned to the government in Damascus. So it, it, that has been denied by the US, but the Kurds in Erbil in Iraq are, are reporting it and a number of Russian-linked sources are reporting it. The concerted push by the US with Israel to destabilise Iran. Yes, well, uh, and I mean Iran, you know, if you think about the history of it, under George W. Bush, there were fears that there was going to be World War Three over this um, hysteria about Iran and weapons of mass destruction. It was another one. I mean, they, they ran it with Iraq, didn't they? They ran it with Syria, the chemical weapons. They ran it with Iran. It's a, a complete fiction that, that just been there to generate a pretext to intervene and aggravate the region, prevent the region from stabilising, from, from prospering, you know, because... The U.S. now has uh, also is pushing for new economic sanctions against Iraq because the popular militia uh, just did very well in the last election and they're going to form part of the government now. And the popular militia was created in 2014 just as uh, Daesh, ISIS, was taking over Iraq. Was, was, there was a real threat of destroying the country. The U.S. had betrayed the Iraqi army. They hadn't delivered weapons and planes that they purchased and, and promised them and really this popular popular mobilization units the PMU Hashtag Shabi are the ones that, that saved Iraq and Iraqi people are enormously grateful to them now the US Congress has unanimously su uh, supported the proposal for sanctions against these groups that will mean that really there's an economic war that the US is waging against the entire region they have they've reimposed sanctions breaching their agreement with Iran against Iran. They, they are about to reimpose more sanctions against Iraq. They, of course, have comprehensive sanctions against Syria, against Lebanon, because Hezbollah is now in government. They have sanctions against Hezbollah. We know that the Palestinian people are deeply sanctioned by the US. They, they can't have a, a decent economy of their own because they're controlled by the occupation forces. So the entire region across there from Iran to the, the Arab world, right across to the Mediterranean, is under an economic war now by the US. But people in our society, Jan, they don't really understand that. They don't, they don't understand what's going on. And then that pushes those countries into seeking other avenues for trade and support. Well, exactly. And, of course, they did that some time ago, and that explains the increased role of Russia and China there. I mean, this was exactly the reverse to what the US wanted. They wanted to control the region. The idea that Condoleezza Rice put out uh, 12 years ago in, in Israel, in Tel Aviv, that there was going to be a new Middle East, you know, of democracy and freedom and so on. That has blown up in their face, basically. And the main 
point of it, of course, was not really so much to directly control the oil as to control the whole region and to dictate the terms on which other people had access to the region. By other people, I mean the only ones that matter to big powers are other big powers. So it was really a competition on the part of the US against the role of Russia, the role of China in the region, but also, let's remember, the role of Western Europe. And now, because the US has been so reckless and so uh, aggressive, even hurting its own friends, we've now, we now see the same sort of thing happening with Western Europe as happening in the Middle East, in a different degree, of course. But what I mean is that the Europeans have now a very strong incentive to develop good relationships with Russia and break from the US in that. And they're talking about it quite openly. And the election in Italy has reinforced it, but the head of the European Commission has been talking about it, that really that it, Trump, it's not just Trump, but Trump has been so erratic that um, they have to reconsider. I mean, the US, for example, wants to impose sanctions on Europe for doing business with Iran and Russia now. And Europeans have got, France, for example, has got big investments in Iran. Uh, Germany has very strong interest to buy natural gas from Russia, and the U.S. is trying to destroy that. So um, really the U.S. is creating a lot of uh, enemies amongst its friends as well as the, the people it wants to dominate in the Middle East and Latin America. You are listening to Tuesday Home Time on Melbourne Community Radio Station 3CR, and my name's Jan Bartlett, and I'm speaking with academic and activist Dr. Tim Anderson. We see Trump as being erratic, as you just said, but it's the men behind him and the women behind him, isn't it? Yeah, yeah you're right. You're right, really. It's the US system. I mean, you know, we don't have to reach back very far to remember George W. Bush and the wonderful things he was doing in the Middle East. Obama, for eight years, ran proxy wars against a range of countries. He bombed and drone-bombed more countries than George W. Bush had. Somehow, his, his image is sort of hasn't fallen in the way that, that Bush's has, and somehow now people think that Trump is the, the main evil in the world. You're right, Trump is just one person in this, in this uh, voracious system which, is, which has been so destructive, uh, particularly in recent times. And then you've got men like Bolton and Pompeo. Well, again, I mean, they're, you know, they're ugly, ugly people, like Trump is an ugly person, but they are really... Know, represent an ugly, an uglier system, basically. Even without those people, we have those those wars going on. There isn't any, really, any U.S. president in living memory you can think of that wasn't involved in some sort of false pretext for war. Even Jimmy Carter, who probably has the best image of all of them in the last half century, he was the one that brought in this doctrine that the U.S. really had a essential national right to be in the Persian Gulf and to control things there and so on, and initiated that terrible war between Iraq and Iran, which, which ran for almost a decade to the detriment of both countries. But the U.S. financed both sides to keep that war going. And, and of course, Saddam Hussein was their puppet until they didn't want him anymore. And then you've got the ugly persona of Netanyahu. And in Saudi Arabia, the new young prince who thinks he's going to take over everything. <laughs> the, the new young prince who no one has seen since there was a... Um, a shootout in, in Riyadh and there's been speculation for a month that maybe he, he's dead and that he hasn't been seen in public since April 21st, whenever it was when that shootout took place. A shootout between whom? The story was it was an, att- it was an attempt to get rid of the king and um, the, the clown prince as they call him but the cover story was that 
the they were just shooting down a, toy, a little drone, one of those small drones that was overflying the Royal Palace. Actually, there's video of the incident and the machine gun fire goes on for about 30 seconds. So if it was a little drone, it, it certainly was an elusive little drone. But anyway, you're right, that there, there's a, a new aggressiveness and a, indeed a partnership between the, you know, the, the, the large Z Zionists in, in Israel and the... Um, the Saudi, the Saudi regime, who have been behind, of course, the destabilisation, the attacks in Iraq and Syria and also uh, Libya, poor, poor Libya, which was destroyed some years ago. So um, that, the, the good side to that, I suppose, is that really Netanyahu, by pursuing with the colonisation of the West Bank, by extending it, has destroyed any illusion people might have had about a two-state solution in Israel. He's also made people very, a lot of um, in the Jewish community around the world ashamed to be associated with Israel. You, you might have seen recently that Natalie Portman, they wanted to give her, the Hollywood actress, they wanted to give her a prize and $2 million, and she refused to go, and they cancelled the event, uh, and it seemed to be a great victory for the boycott, divestment, and sanctions campaign. But, of course, she herself doesn't support that campaign. She was just so embarrassed. She didn't want to be seen with Netanyahu. She doesn't. She's Israeli by birth, but she didn't want to be identified with the current government. So, ineffectively, effectively, she's giving great support to the BDS movement without wanting to be associated with it. So, there are some contrary factors, as I said, with the U.S. that, in 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 terms of Israel, that really they're driving a lot of their supporters away. And of course, we've got this the horrific crimes being committed against the people in Gaza in that peaceful protest and. Sometimes incidents there, like the, the murder of that young nurse just recently, Razan, and the, the jailing of the young woman, Ahmed Tamimi, and so those things just highlight the, the cancer that is this racist regime in, the, in Palestine at the moment. And I think in many ways, you know, in, in that sort of dialectical, perverse way, they are creating more and more problems for, for the maintenance of those sorts of really proxies for the big powers there. Israel exists, Saudi Arabia exists because they serve a purpose. They served a purpose for the British, they serve a purpose for the, the US now, but again, they are shooting themselves in the foot too by their recklessness and their and their, their terribly public crimes and, and the crimes of that apartheid regime, the crimes of the Saudis in creating all of these terrorist groups to serve the interests of the big powers. And perhaps, to the cancer of the Christian fundamentalists in the U.S. Well, there's that strange relationship that a number of the Christian groups have with, with Israel. It's a, a hard one for many people to understand, I, I think, but um, it's, and it's something to do with the end of the world and, and biblical prophecies and so on, which a lot of us maybe don't even have the time to, to want to understand. But there is that strange relationship. Um, it has to be said at the same time that is, the Israeli leaders... Um, don't really believe they're quite worried that they're going to be betrayed at some stage by this. I mean, they've got their own cult, basically. I mean, I've just written a chapter and some articles about this because I was in Palestine earlier this year, but it's a myth. It's a racial myth that Israel has created about its own existence. But effectively, it's a conventional type of colony with its own racial ideology, and it's precisely Israeli or Jewish 
uh, scientists that have been exploding that recently, the, 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 the myth that all Jewish people come from Palestine, basically, or from the Levant, and you know they all emigrated after the destruction of the Second Temple. It's a type of Second Temple cult, which doesn't dominate all Judaism by any means, but it's the one on which, on which Israel was founded. And it obscures the fact that Israel is basically run by European Jews, and has been from the beginning. I looked, I looked through recently the list of the Israeli Prime Ministers, and there's been 13 since 1948. Not one of them uh, has a family that was in the Levant more than a generation before. They're all Europeans, and it's been a European colony since that time. So the type of mythology that the Netanyahu's the world, basically, with a family from Eastern Europe, come from is really, I think, now some of those myths are, are being peeled back, if you like, from, from the reality that is Palestine. And we see these appalling crimes now, and I think, I hope that people are getting a little bit educated about what really is been the root of the conflict in the Middle East. Now, when I was a kid, I used to see stories about Latin America, and I thought maybe the Latin Americans were mad, they were crazy, because there was always these coups and military dictatorships and all sorts of things going on in Latin America. And it wasn't until later on that I realized, oh, there was a root cause of this conflict in Latin America. And it wasn't that the Latin Americans were crazy, or that the Irish were crazy, or that the Arabs were crazy. There was something in there that was making them crazy. And that something is imperialism, something in which our country, unfortunately, has been a part of for a very long time. And when we try and talk about imperialism and our role in the world, of course, the, the media, which is owned by the big powers that drive these wars, jump on us, you know, and that's what keeps a lot of people in our society very ignorant. And, of course, you've got to look at the, the treatment of the non-European Jews who want to go to Israel. Yes, well, I mean, they've created this cult, this Second Temple cult, the idea that they're all returning to somewhere where they came from originally. As I said, the genetic tests show these days that Judaism was much more widespread. That at the time of uh, Christ and soon after the destruction of the Second Temple, uh, there were 90% of the Jews in that region were all around the, the Mediterranean, around the, um, around the, from Europe, and the, the maternal DNA, the mitochondrial DNA, is mainly European there. So now you've got these inter... There, there isn't, in other words, there isn't really a racial Jewish person. It's not really a race. Of course, it's an identity. It's more than a religion. It's an identity. But it's not really a race. But now, within Israel, you've got... They've, you know, because it's part of their strategic plan, they've wanted a lot of immigrants to try and count, be a counterweight to the Palestinians, who are still almost the same. There's virtually the same number of Arab people in the Levant as there are... Jews in that part that's controlled by Israel, for example, and they're worried about that. They're very scared about that. They brought in a lot of Russians. A lot of those Russians weren't even Jews. There's racism between the European Jews, uh, the Ashkenazi Jews that have come in, and the, the genuine Jews from who do have heritage in the Levant. And now they've been prohibiting uh, these um, African, African Jews, saying that they're not really Jews. You know, So they've never been able to define, even though it's so important to the identity of Israel, the governments there have never been able to define who is a Jew, basically, and they're stuck with that because they are really the whole state has been built around this idea that it is uh, Jewish people who come from this region who are returning to this region, and and that's insoluble, effectively. They've created a, 
a racial ideology, a fake racial ideology, which is frighteningly similar, you know, to what the the Nazi Germans did uh, to the European Jews. And that's a, a shocking truth that perhaps a lot of Jewish people don't want to face up to. But in, in terms of Israel, this thing that's been created is, is based on this fake racial science, which also creates the racial other, which then justifies the ethnic cleansing. It's a terrible cycle of logic that's, that's been repeated all over again. Well, finally, Tim, the faked death of a prominent Kremlin critic and journalist in the Ukraine capital last week, and also other claims against Russia. Not that I'm an apologist for Russia, but you've got to look at these issues. Mm. Well, you know, we, we live in an in a era when anyone who criticises the, uh, the big powers is called a conspiracy theorist, and I was having a, a minor fight the other day with some Wikipedia super editors who all think it's perfectly legitimate to label someone as a conspiracy theorist and then try and disqualify them from the debate. But what conspiracy theorist means really is that someone is saying the emperor has no clothes and they may say it well or they may say it badly and maybe a lot of people say it badly. But look at all the conspiracy theories thrown at Russia. Here's this person who was supposedly shot dead. There was a picture of him shot dead and he comes back to life. There's the scribbles in... Britain, who supposedly were poisoned, no one really knows why, supposedly military-grade poison, but they both live. You know, there's such a lot of theories with, let's say, at best, flimsy evidence against Russia, but it doesn't seem to matter. It doesn't seem to matter because of the, the great conflict that the big power in the world, the real big power in the world, has been driving. Uh, of course, Britain got very involved in that one too. So, yeah, we've got a, a range of conspiracy theories thrown against Russia, but um, it doesn't really seem to it doesn't really seem to matter what the evidence is. This is what I struggled with the the stories about Syria for a long time. I thought you can say evidence does matter. We'll go back and apply some rational sort of reasonable approach to all these claims about chemical weapons, but that doesn't seem to matter because the media is determined the corporate and state media that's aligned and loyal to the big powers with these war projects, they're just determined to uh, persist with their narrative and repeat uh, the same things until people believe it. They'll persist in repeating that Putin poisoned the scribbles in, in, uh, in, so in uh, England, and it doesn't matter about the evidence. We, they've even put a, a D notice on the evidence, haven't they? So they don't even want people to investigate these things. And that also applies to the way that the investigation was carried out into the downing of the MH17. Exactly, exactly. They've repeated that with really, let's say, the best you can say about it is extremely flimsy evidence and uh, terrible things, you know, that involve life and death and, and they're, they're, they're terrible incidents, whether they're manufactured like this case in, what was his name? In, I've forgotten his name either. Badchenko, something like that, a person who, a terrible person really, they've shown pictures of him since then, he's laughing about the uh, the plane of the, I think it was a choir, a Russian choir that was killed and he was celebrating this choir being killed in a plane crash, you know, and he was going to be the latest victim and, uh, you know, if he hadn't, uh, if he hadn't resurfaced, it, as someone, I think, as Katie Johnson said, the, the Melbourne journalist, if he'd stayed dead, Everyone believed that, that Putin had killed him, basically. But the fact is, he, he bounced back to life and uh, everyone sort of dusted off their 
their latest attacks on Russia and we're back to normal. You can imagine the impact of that on his children. Yeah, apparently he's got six children too. Mm. You know, I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what sort of person he is. You know, but in a sense, it was the scribbles all over again. What really happened to the scribbles? Are we ever going to know? Mm. I'm not sure. And you think that if they really were punished by a, a weapon that they talked about, they wouldn't be alive today? Well, you know, it's just hard to believe, isn't it? You know, it's not very hard to kill a person, an individual person these days, you know, and I don't know, military-grade poisons, you know, they both survived. People are saying that Julia looks even better than she did before, you know, and they're, they're making jokes about selling this stuff as a rejuvenation lotion or something <laughs> like that, you know. It's just, it's just bizarre. Somehow people are learning to live with a fictional sort of world. The certainties of the world are... are, are there's sort of an inverse relationship between things that are real and how certain people are in saying them. It's, it's quite a bizarre world to live in, if you ask me. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Jan. And that's Dr Tim Anderson speaking about lots of different places around the world. A great person to have on radio. Well, that's all for me for today, but I will remind you once again that a different program next week. Next week we'll be asking you, the regular or irregular listener, to please donate to the Radiothon to make it a successful Radiothon this year as it usually is but we have to work hard to make sure it does and we're all volunteers and we just need to um, get a bit of encouragement to make sure that we keep on going so that's me for today but Dumbo Law will be here very soon let's hear a little bit about Ruby Hunter bye for now